Hello everyone, I hope this new year is treating you well, and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. Today my guest is Brazilian composer Marcelo Zarvos. You might be familiar with Marcelo's work from films like Dark Waters with Mark Ruffalo, or Fences, the adaptation of the August Wilson play. But today we're primarily talking about his new film, which is a journal for Jordan, which actually reunites him with Fences' director, Denzel Washington. And it's a lovely little score that's very heavily piano-based, some woodwinds and some French horn, I think, that gives it a very intimate, emotional feeling, which ties very well with the film itself. So I definitely recommend giving a little listen. And in the meantime, we touch on some pretty wide-ranging topics, including some Brazilian 80s and 90s thrash metal, particularly Sepultura, one of my favorite bands growing up. And Marcelo gives a lot of good insight about working with Denzel and how it creates a very productive, supportive environment and how useful that is to be a successful composer and to create an excellent score. Of course, you can find more about Marcelo on his website or on various social media. And of course, check out his music on the various streaming platforms or wherever you buy your music. And you can always find me on social media or check out my website for more reviews and write-ups, both from me and from my various guest contributors as well. Now, I'm excited for this new year. I've had some great guests already, and so far at least, fingers crossed, I have some really good ones lined up that I'm, uh, I'm really excited for. I hope they turn out and provide some great listens. But in the meantime... Sit back, and I hope you enjoy. Marcelo, thanks for joining me. I, I really appreciate it. How have you been? Very good, Nick. Thank you for, for having me. Uh, uh, it's great, great to be here and, you know, and talking about uh, my favorite subject of film scores. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, you, uh, you just scored a journal for Jordan, which came out, I think, uh, a week or two ago. Yeah. But you saying that you know, film scoring, film music's your favorite subject... I want to focus on that really quick. You had a background in in composing and classical music, trained as a pianist, and then after that, your music world just kind of exploded in scope. So how did all of that find its way to film music? Well, you know, I fell in love with music through film music. I mean, that's when I was a kid. That's what I what I loved was I wasn't even sure. I didn't know that there was a job. I just remember... I think it comes down to my love of cinema and film in general and just always just being, you know, completely uh, mesmerized by, by films. And I started doing music and, and a lot of it had to do with just what I was hearing on the films. And I was like, wow, that is cool. Because as you know, the, film, the music for films, first of all, it could be anything from straight ahead classical music to, to rap and anything in between, you know, so... So th- there was something about how varied, you know, stylistically it was, but also I think ultimately, you know, the the real thing for me is just that that fusion of the visual and the audio, and I feel like there's something very primal about it, you know, that that goes back towards the cave people, you know, kind of hearing stories in the dark and and kind of and I, and I feel like that there's something very uh, uh, that is very close to my soul about it, and that's how I, as I said, how I fell in love with music was I would hear these pieces and try to figure out what they were, you know, pieces from the movies of my childhood, and then little by little I was I learned wow there is actually 
somebody's writing that music and whoa, there's a, there's a job of doing that. And, and I think it, it went right, you know, hand in hand with my love of film and of storytelling in general. It's funny how, how many well-known composers now have that experience of growing up as kids, not even knowing that that was a job. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, it was just like, I mean, it's so far, you know, I grew up in Brazil and I mean, uh, my family's not in the business at all. And it was just, uh, everything was very, very far. But then, you know, as you get interested in something, you start to read and learn more about it. And, and as I got a little bit older, I, I started to seek out certain composers that I thought were interesting in their music. But at first it was really just about that uniting of that, you know, the drama and the story with, with music and, and how that makes you feel. This is going to show my my ignorance of Brazilian films besides a, a very small handful. Yeah. But growing up in Brazil, were you watching like American and British films? Was there a, a Brazilian industry too? Or if not, did that kind of make composing for films seem even more distant? Well, it definitely felt very distant. You know, there was an industry of the, the it's kind of a, a funny thing to say, a little risque, but it's the truth. When I was growing up in the 70s, the majority of, of the Brazilian film, with a few notable exceptions of like very artsy stuff, was actually kind of sort of soft porn kind of stuff. I mean, that's really, there was a name that they called Porno Chanchada. And was, so, the, you know, to, to answer your question, I didn't really listen, I didn't really watch a lot of Brazilian films growing up. There were a handful that were amazing. But what was like in most theaters, it was it was pretty crappy. And actually, I couldn't even have gone anyways because it was, you know, inappropriate for my age. So I grew up really with American and British and European film in general. Luckily, in Brazil, they didn't dub films. It was always with subtitles. So I, I you know, certain countries to this day still people watch American films dubbed in their language. I never really did that. And. And I'm glad because I find that, that the language is so important, you know, and whatever the language that is spoken originally for a story and for a film. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, one thing that I, I really do appreciate about Brazil is that, you know, I, I grew up as a big metalhead. And mm -hmm. for whatever reason, so many, ba like, so many metal bands are just huge in Brazil. And, yes. you know, one of, one of my favorite bands growing up was a band called Sepultura. Sepultura, like, of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, 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 we loved, you know, there was, and, and Sepultura was was also coming out of uh, at this time when there, there was a period of time when Brazilian rock was the most popular music in Brazil. And I actually participated in that. I used to play in a band in my teens. So in the 80s, Sepultura was kind of already big, but Sepultura became huge outside of Brazil first. And then he kind of really? like went back. Yes. I mean, they were, they were, yeah, they really kind of made their name out, outside of Brazil. But the public always loved heavy metal. I mean, I, I remember one of the formative experiences of my life was going to the first Rock in Rio. And we had like Iron Maiden and Queen and all these bands were, were playing, I think ACDC too. And it was a very eclectic kind of thing, <laughs> but they had literally like in the same building, they would have like Iron Maiden, Ozzy Osbourne, then James Taylor, you know, and Al Jarreau, <laughs> you know, it was this very random kind of mix, but it was cool. And people, you know, one thing I think it's pretty well known is that how much music is a huge thing in brazil you know it's yeah. it's um people love music all kinds of music and it's a big part of it. i remember reading even recently that in the my city of sao paulo more people will have attended a live music event than film 
in huh. any given week. Now, that, that counts also being in a bar and somebody's playing the guitar, but, you know, it's so ingrained, and so music is, is a huge part of the Brazilian soul, and I feel very lucky to have been born there and, and been exposed to all this great stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's that's awesome. It sounds like a great place musically to have come up. And and honestly, I, I could I could ask you about just that aspect and Brazilian rock and metal in the 80s and 90s. <laughs> but, you know, if, if we had a couple hours, maybe, but, uh, you know, we could, we could move on a little bit. Yeah, okay. So Journal for Jordan just came out. And I think that's actually your second collaboration with Denzel Washington. Uh, Correct. Who, who directed this. I think your first one was Fences, which came out in 2016. Right. So how did that relationship start? How did you get involved? Involved with him as a director? Well, it was, as you said, on Fences is when I met him. I had never met him. I had worked with one of the directors that is very associated with Enzel, which is uh, was Antoine Foucault, mm-hmm. who I still work with, to this day with and a very dear friend and collaborator. But actually, it didn't come through Antoine. Now, I thought that for a time, you know, I used to, well, maybe Antoine put a good word for me. But by the time Denzel and I met, I mean, he, he hadn't made that connection. So it really was... The old school way, I sent some music, a demo reel. I knew the, the play Fences. I was, you know, I, I love August Wilson. And I when I was in college, I've, I've studied that play, not as a performer, but just the text. And I always, when I, when I heard that they were doing a film of it, I, I went crazy and went to my agent and was like, we, we got to figure out a way to get some music there. But, you know, these things, you know, 99% of the time, you know, Somebody like Denzel would have had already a composer and a relationship, you know, and and lots of the stars really have to align. And they did align in that case. I put in all this music that I thought it might be pertinent to the film. And even though I had no idea what he was looking for musically, and he really enjoyed the music. And the producer, Todd Black, also heard the music and was really pro and so I was summoned to go to Paramount and, and meet Denzel, and it was really amazing. I mean, you know, once I knew I, I was going to meet him, and I was, like, really quite nervous, you know. It's, it's Denzel, you know, and there's just that voice, you know, that we all uh, know so well. And luckily, I had worked with a few actor-directors before. One of my earlier sort of breakthrough movies was The Good Shepherd, which was directed by Robert De Niro. So I remember meeting De Niro, also another titan of film, you know, and kind of, you know, realizing they, you know, they are, as a director, they're interested in you, you know, that's why you're there. And so, you know, I kind of called myself down and I, I went to Paramount and uh, first I watched the movie. I went into a empty theater and they played the whole cut of Fences for me. And I was floored. I remember after the screening, somebody came to kind of take me. I said, okay, I need a couple minutes to just sort of collect my thoughts here. It was quite an overwhelming experience to watch that film. I should, there's just something about that story and I think the level of artistry that Denzel brought to Fences and I mean his acting, I mean his, and Viola Davis and everybody. I mean it's truly, I felt like when I was watching I was like okay these are two actors at the absolute top of their game yeah. at the height of their thing and you better don't mess this up you know so <laughs> so but then I went and talked to him and um I, I met with him in the cutting room with the editor, Hughes Winborn, who is his longtime editor. And we had a great chat. And one of the things about that I saw, I learned right then with Denzel is that he talks sort of around the subject. He's, he's not the person that is going to sit down and say, okay, so what did you think of the film? What do you think the music should be? It was more like, hey, how are you doing? You know, what's going on? And kind of like he's very, very, very smart about it. He kind of directs the conversation without you even realizing it. And, you know, we talked about it. And I think one of the things that I said 
and I think it was a little bit maybe even a, he wanted to test my convictions. He was like, do you think that this music should be jazzy or anything, being that it's August Wilson and it's an African-American story? And I said, no, I don't think so. And, it was, I, and I really felt that. I, I said, I feel like this is a universal story and the music should be, you know, I think the story is true in Pittsburgh where it was conceived, but also somebody in Japan will 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 watch this movie and, and in India and in Brazil and will get all the things because ultimately it's about love and family and regrets and all these things that are universal. So he was very happy about it. I mean, I, I've learned over the years that, you know, you want to really speak your mind. It's you always win when you're being honest and, and sincere with what you're saying. So that I think was a, you know, was a real plus. And then we had, we finished the meeting and he said, okay, great. You know, we're meeting a couple more people. We'll be in touch. And a week later, I heard that I got the job and I was <laughs> like, oh my God, you know, and it was a great process all along with fences. And to go to, to Journal for Jordan, one of the things that was unique about it was how little music there was in fences because there was so much dialogue. And so there was, the score was 35 minutes and the first cue didn't come in until over half an hour into the film is the first cue. I never worked in a film like that. So when we started Journal for Jordan, you know, the first thing we did was Denzel sent me the script, said, read it, and then let's meet and talk about it. This was like in the middle of the pandemic, so everything was so complicated, but we did meet in person. He is somebody that really, really, he, he appreciates the importance of eye-to-eye contact, you know, and I think as being such a great performer or whatever the reasons are, he he wanted to meet me in person, even though we had already worked on something. And of course, I went and we met and we talked about Journal for Jordan, my impressions of the script. And and I thought that it was going to be a lot more like Fences in terms of like very little music, very sparse, and it's all about the acting. And that's how we set out to do it. After our meeting, as I was leaving, he's like, great, can't wait to see what you're going to come up with. This was a couple months before they started to shoot. So I just, I had a lot of time to really think about it because a lot of the times composers were brought in after they're done shooting when they're more or less a few weeks or maybe halfway through the cut, maybe more through the editing process. In this case, I had all this time before and I was like, what am I going to do? You know, I, (laughs) I, I want to start to write. And so one of the things that was different about Journal for Jordan is that I asked, because there was no cut, I said, can I watch the dailies? And at first, the studio was, you know, on the dailies for some of the people that are watching that might not know all the, the terminology. is basically the raw footage of a film. All of the takes, without being cut, scene by scene, sometimes there will be a scene you'll have five different camera angles of the same scene. So it's not something you really get a sense of the film, how it really flows, but you get a sense of what it looks like. And coincidentally, the first thing that they shot was all of the uh, sort of military stuff. They went to a military base in in, uh, California and shot everything. Then it was almost two months before they got back and shot the rest of the film. So at first, all I saw were the dailies of the military stuff. And and one of the things that stuck with me was all this amazing drone footage that there was of the base and of the mountains. That kind of really captured my my imagination. And it was a really interesting thing because I had never really been offered dailies to watch in a project. And I think it's something that I'm definitely going to be asking from now on because it, you kind of get a sense for the movie without being too sort of constrained by the scenes and what it's doing. And you just get a sense of what it looks like hmm. in a very vivid, general way. 
And I ended up writing a couple of themes that actually were integral themes to the score and were used, even though they, I wrote them not to picture. Then they actually cut a couple of sequences to those themes. And, you know, we changed it around a little bit. But so by the time I really got going after they were done shooting, there was already some of my music was in the cut. So it was it was a very, very natural process of him already being used to my music from a previous project, but then even from this project. And then it was a very, you know, you have to work very hard with Denzel. He's he's not messing around. He's He expects absolutely everybody to be at their A game, but he gives you what you need throughout the process. Every time I've worked with him, he's always very often will check in and say, are you okay? Do you have what you need? Do you need more time? Do we need more communication from me? He's very, very, uh, but then he le lets you do your job. And I think from having worked with all of the greatest directors, basically, you know, that there are, I think he values the idea of giving freedom to your collaborators, but also direction. And so then, you know, when they were done shooting, they were cutting in LA, I would come once a week to the cutting room and we would look at one or two cues at a time, not very, very gradual. And it was the perfect kind of working environment where I tried things, some, some of them would work, some of them wouldn't, but it was always very positive and very, you know, all about pointing out what's working and trying to build on that. And over the course of three, four months, next thing we know, by the time they were done cutting and they had a locked picture, the score was also had been written, not recorded, but I had composed it already. There are so many things in that that I love, not just giving you the space to work, but particularly the time as well. I mean, there, there have been great scores that have been written in, you know, a week or a couple weeks, but giving a composer the time to actually really sink their teeth in, think about it, I always think that's just the, the best way to go. So it's always so encouraging to hear directors doing that today. Absolutely. And, and the interesting thing with him is that you could almost extrapolate that idea and say, well, you know, then maybe we could spend a year working on the score. But there's also such a thing as like when things get overbaked, you know, and mm -hmm. kind of. So what I saw with Enzo is that he gives you what you need and the movie as a whole. I mean, this is I'm one of the departments, but, you know, for everybody is the same. You get what you need, but he's not going to say, OK, I'll give you eight months to write the score. He, yeah. he gives you what you need, not more. And I think at any point, if I had gone and said, listen, I, we're having a hard time, I, we need more time, he would have obliged. But he's also not somebody that is, there's no excess going on. You know, he's, he's serious about film. He loves film. He loves to talk about it. He loves to have a, a tight crew and talk about it. But he's not somebody that is interested in the, in the bling of it all, you know, and like, oh, you know, I, I mean, he would call me on, you know, directly on my phone. There was, you know, he was very kind of direct that way. And, and he knew and knows the power of just keeping your crew that you trust right there. And we would meet, of course, we're, you know, it was during COVID, everybody was being tested every week and we're all vaccinated, but, you know, we were in person doing this and he, which was not an easy thing to accomplish in, in the age of COVID, but it was very important to him that that's the part that I think he really put his foot down with the studio or whatever was like, okay, we are going to do this how it's meant to be. It's mm -hmm. not going to be done via Zoom. We're going to meet and we're going to talk about it and do it in the, the way that is most conducive to creativity. Well, and you had said that it seems like a lot of that comes from his experience as an actor working with probably every great modern director the last however many decades. Yeah. 
But with the actual sound of the score, I know that I think his wife is a pianist. Right. Do you think that has an influence in the palette that ended up finding its way into the score? He loves piano. You know, he knows I'm a pianist. As you said, his wife is a, is a very, very accomplished pianist. And it's interesting because, you know, piano is almost like it's an extension of my hand or something. You know, I've been playing my whole life and so many of my scores, piano plays a big part. And I think one of the things is that it's there is a level of expression that I can achieve on piano that I can't achieve on anything else because it's right there. You know, there's no... No communication. It was interesting because, you know, Journal for Jordan ended up having a lot of piano, and I recorded all of the pianos at Sony, the big studio there where we later recorded the orchestra, with Denzel sitting like a few feet away from me <laughs> in the thing. And I was at first I was like, whoa, whoa, this is going to be something. But, you know, he's very respectful, and he was really digging it. He loves, he loves music. A lot of the times in a meeting, we would be talking. He said, oh, have you heard this? And play me some songs that maybe his kids had shown him or some old tune that he likes. And his music is really, really important to him. And also another thing that was very interesting and completely unique to the process in this film, at least my experience, is that he would listen to the score a lot on its own. Hmm. So what we would do is that we, we created a playlist. Actually, it was not even a playlist. It was a CD, so he could play it on his car. So as the cues would get approved... We would give him in the end of every week, every meeting, a CD. At first, there were like five tracks in it. And then he kept going more and more in the order of the film. And he would listen to it once or twice a day on his way to and from the cutting room. So he really knew the music, like, mm -hmm. in, you know, to an extent that, you know, sometimes he would mention things, say, oh, that's interesting, this cube. It's a similar motif to what's happening, you know, in real one. And sometimes I, it was not even a conscious thing, but he could hear it. And it was interesting to... You know, again, going back to the idea of having enough time, you know, I mean, sometimes like when I'm working on a TV show, for instance, there is no time for anything. Everybody's running as fast as they can. The showrunner has to, or the director, whoever it is, will have to listen to 12 cues and give their thoughts right there and then. And there was none of that. You know, he was able to kind of let the music sink into his to his soul and his brain and his ears. And he has incredible, incredible ears. I saw on Fences where he could hear things, very high register stuff. I mean, in, in a different parallel world, Denzel would have been an incredible musician or conductor or, or something, you know. And he really has a very, very finely, finely attuned ear to details and so it was It was all about the process and all about him getting to know the music and then contributing and suggesting things. And, and I, you know, it was, I'm not going to say it was easy because that would not be true, but it was, it was very smooth and felt very, very safe, you know, to the way that, that we went about it. And I felt like I could really bring my A game and I always would only show, show him things that I felt extremely strongly about that they were good. He might like them or, or might not, but you know, sometimes you don't have time and you have to just go as far as you can and show the stuff. And in this case, I would have time. I would write a cue and maybe I might stop and kind of go work on something else, come back after a couple of days. There was this, the way that it more, how it used to be in a sense. I mean, film has become more and more like TV in a way that 
the deadlines and the schedules get more and more compressed and composers are asked to do more and more with less time. So when, when you get what you, everything you need is, is a real breath of fresh air. I always get so envious of people like that who seem to have an, an infinite amount of talent in all these different areas. And yeah. I, I know for you know, working as a composer on film, it can be a, a, a double-edged sword of having a director who's a musician or is musically gifted or has an ear like that. You know, sometimes they are a little more combative or overbearing because you know they have that experience and it sounds like this was the opposite where look he knows that you're the composer like this is what you do and he's there to help to push back when he thinks it's appropriate but not to the extent that it's just creating this disaster to work in absolutely i mean that's that's a key part he would talk to me even though he he's very very well versed in music he would always talk to me in terms of the drama in terms of where are we at in the story one of the big things with him is when to hold back and kind of like to not give the game away very soon. And as a, as an actor, I mean, you know, I I remember after working on Fences, going and back and every time I see him on, on screen now, I, I think of how much of that skill that he has, you know, the that intensity, but it's never very loud. Denzel, you know, in the movies, in the, he can be super scary talking very quietly, you know, like one man on fire or something or... So there is this sense of like he talks to you like he would talk to an actor. And I think all the great directors I've worked with have that in common. They understand that you don't want to say, hey, change that chord to a minor chord there. That's not the point. The point is this might be a little too much here. Maybe we need to pull back and let's open up here and kind of deal with it as storytelling, which is what it really is. Well, in in talking about restraint and intensity. I think that really does kind of flow through into the score as well, because there is, as you mentioned earlier, a a military aspect to it. And there is quite intense human emotional drama, but there's never a point where the score is matching that same intensity as far as something you'd hear in like an action film or in you know recent film like dune where it's just loud to and overwhelming and and here it's you know at the end of the day no matter what's happening on screen at any given moment it's recognizing that this is really a deeply personal drama among three people exactly it's a human it's a human story it was very important i remember it when when i was started it i was really in my mind my you know i hadn't really done a war movie you know and i was like oh my god what what am i going to do it but from the very beginning when we talked about it he was very clear that the war was whatever music was going to happen during that that part of the story was going to be more impressionistic and very spiritual denzel is an extremely spiritual person and also i mean i think that when he talks about film, at least in my experience, he's talking about the drama and some of the technical things, but there's a lot about spirituality that goes on. On Fences, we, we really talked about it, and, and but this one even more because it is a spiritual story. And I, I very early on in our conversations, I said, you know, I think that the, the person we have to really focus here the most is Jordan, you know, because he is the key to this whole story, even though we don't spend as much time with him as we do with the parents. But, you know, there is a spiritual aspect of the story of like a father speaking from the beyond to his son, you know, and knowing that he might not be there to talk in person. And there's this element of talking 
from another dimension. And and again, like I think that Denzel is a is a spiritual man, a religious man, and he wanted that to be part of the of the score. He wanted it to to and again, not in a oh, let's add choir and not it's never in a religious way. It's more in a spiritual way. And thinking about how these characters came into being in each other's life, but mostly how how is this father going to be communicating really important things to his son when he's not around anymore? And so that was the other element that he talked a lot about. But I, I think that goes back to a point you men- mentioned much earlier, talking about fences and not having a jazz score to maintain that universality. That works the same here. If you had something that was you know, very gospel or choir-based, it yeah. it focuses much more on the religious aspect that is it universal to everybody? You know, for exactly. for me, I'm obviously very different from the characters in the film, but I had very similar experiences to Jordan. Actually, you know, my my father was in the military. He ended up passing away when I was a child from it as well. And so, wow. having all that unfold, just having that, it's a it's an integral part of the story. But everything else is different between us. Like, still resonated very emotionally with me. And I think other choices may have dampen that impact. So I think, yeah, the palette and the genre choice of it matched perfectly. And oh, thank you. I, I, I appreciate it. Wow, that's that's an intense thing that well, what you just shared, you know, I mean, that's that's yeah. a, that's a, that's amazing. Uh, um, it's, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. I think the universality of it, I mean, I think that's why film is such a powerful medium, you know, is that people from all over can relate to the stories and can relate to the drama and to the mythology of it and to the kind of the commonality i mean i think what makes a great artist a great artist like denzel is is that he can appeal to somebody that looks like him or somebody that looks nothing like him and because they're kind of cutting through the geographic part of it you know and mm-hmm. it's more about what is what makes us human and what what unites us and you're right, we never wanted it to be a story where the military part, the, the element of the military that he's more interested in was, honestly, was like the incredible sacrifice, you know, I mean, and that's the part that when I first talked to him ab- about the project, I was like, well, you know, it's interesting that I kind of was at first thinking of it politically, you know, with Dana, the writer, being a very left-leaning person, very liberal New York Times journalist. And Jordan, I assumed, would have been a more conservative person, part of the military. And he said, you know what? The kids in the military are not thinking about if they're Republicans or Democrats. They couldn't care less. You know, they're there doing a job. A lot of them just want to see the world and they want to expand their horizons. But nobody's sitting there saying, oh, you know, this is a a red or blue issue, you know. And I think that part of the sacrifice, you know, what these people, I mean, obviously in your case, you know, your family paid the, the ultimate price and the, the 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 highest sacrifice that there is and as with Michael B. Jordan's character. But, you know, even outside of that, all the PTSD and all of the, mm-hmm. you know, all of the incredible sacrifices and this families, you know, he pointed this thing out to me that the end of the movie takes place in Arlington. And they did they took a little bit of a liberty because actually Top, the, the sergeant was not buried there. He was actually buried close to where his mother lived. But they did took a, a creative liberty to do the final scene at Arlington. But there are over half a million people buried in Arlington. And they're not, some of them are the families, you know, as well, which I didn't realize. But he really, um, he it was very important to him to kind of portray the sacrifices that are being made by, by the military are, they're, they're very real. They're very immediate. 
and they have nothing to do with politics. You know, once you're there and it's it's about survival and, and about, like in the case of, of Jordan, for, you know, for Jordan, protecting your troops and at whatever cost. And I think um, this aspect, that was the aspect of the military that was important to him. It was the sacrifice. It was not some like naive, we're going to go bring freedom and, and yeah. you know, free this. It was nothing like that. It was really about how these people put their behinds on the line and, and kind of really give everything they got. That's something that I, th- I think surprised me a little bit because you don't see it very often in military films. Quite often it's, like you said, it's, it's one of those extremes or the other. And here it was very much like we're going to go out of our way to ensure like we are not commenting on the political aspect of this. We are focusing on the kinship and the importance that these men have to one another. Uh, again, on the very personal human basis which you know, I, I appreciate it. And, and similarly, setting it at Arlington, I don't think I've ever seen almost a footnote in credits like that where it explicitly points out, by the way, this aspect, it's done in creative liberty. And I, I appreciated that. I think that that's just like a, you know, a level of, of respect and pointing out what's true versus what's just artistic merit is like, you never see that. It's true. He he really had and has a deep respect for the people. And when we're in the opening of this film, uh, when it premiered in New York, Dana Kennedy was there, you know, who wrote the story. And she was showing me some pictures of, they had been talking about this movie for like 12 years or something, for a long time. There were pictures of Denzel when he did, what is that, Unstoppable, this Tony Scott film that was in, took place in a train. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And, you know, this was a long time with Denzel, with Jordan wow. on his lap. You know, like they were already, they, they were developing this thing. So it was very important for him to get it right also in the eyes of the family. And I think another thing that I really loved was seeing a military family, you know, and seeing seeing where they are. And they're like, you know, you know many ways of typical American family. They happened to be in the military. Her dad was, all their friends are. But it was interesting to see this, you know, this other world that we never really get to see very much, you know, of what the whole shebang, you know, it's not just people boots on the ground. I mean, there are families and there are lives and generations that are affected one way or the other about this. And he really wanted to get that right and went to great care to to make sure that they got the story and honored the story in the correct way. Yeah, and I think that comes through in in the film, and and again in the score as well, where it's just this, a much smaller portion of the score has that kind of military lean to it, but it's yeah. it avoids kind of having a cliche or again having this rallying rah rah side to it either. It avoids that too, which I th- I think keeps it a bit more grounded and a bit more respectful. I think so. And it was that, you know, it was never like, oh, this is going to be fun, you know, a fun adventure and all of that. And in many ways, like when it came down to the sequence where we actually see what happened, his whole point of view and what he wanted to focus was always the spiritual and this this person is about to go and meet their maker and kind of, you know, it was never about like, look, there was somebody on the side of the road and a bomb exploded and they shot. It was all like about, in a sense, the whole sequence when they're leaving the base and you fo- you see what happened was kind of like a journey towards the beyond, you know, and that's how I saw it and, and the way that it shot a lot of those aerial footages. It always feels like we're looking at this 
from a different plane, not from the ground. We're looking from above. And even when it came to, you know, the choices of instrumentation, I knew I wanted to somehow allude to the military aspect of his character because, I mean, he was a soldier. He really was a soldier. He had no question about that. But, you know, instead of using trumpets and all of that, we use the French horn. It's a much lower instrument that still has that noble sound, but without ever being kind of you know, it was never, it just was never what, what he was looking for. That makes sense. And in wrapping up, what other respect aspect I wanted to talk about that's a kind of change, but it's also in the credits, is that it, it looked like basically every session musician was actually credited in the credits. I know a lot of uh, musicians that play for film and other media, and that's one of the things that they complain about most is that they are never credited. And when I was sitting through the credits in the theater, I saw, I don't know, 80 names or something all scrolling through, and I appreciated that. Well, that was, you know, that was a policy for Sony. I mean, I'll I'll give my my head off to the studio. You know, they really are very Mm -hmm. serious about, first of all, recording everything in LA or in the US, you know, and using the American players and but also given credit. It was it's uh kind of a new guideline I think that they have and, and not every studio has it because many of them don't record here. But it was it was something that was you know, there was no question. It's and it was not even like I said, hey, I want this because I know from you know, having done this many times, you you have only so much control over, you know, and usually you try to pick, okay, here's three people that were had a particularly strong influence in the score. But in this case, from the very beginning, said, no, no, everybody gets credit. And it was it was great. It was the sessions were very were amazing. You know, even in the middle of the pandemic, we're recording in this big place. I mean, without the care and testing and masks and all of that, but everybody was just so happy to be there, you know, and and also the players when Denzel walked into the recording, I mean, people were like, you know, they freak out. I mean, he's he's one of the most beloved actors, filmmakers in the world, really. And there's this very inspiring thing. And and I think it's, again, it's very important to him that everybody feels appreciated. And he would always go through great lengths to make sure that that's the case. And that's great. And that, you know, that has to be such a, a surreal experience, no matter how many actors and directors and everyone that you meet, like someone like Denzel is otherworldly. It really is. You know, he really is. And, and, and there's this charisma that is just very um, effortless. And he's not, I'm not going to say he's not intimidating. He doesn't try to intimidate you. I mean, he is who he is. And he also doesn't slow down for anyone, but it's all about this communication. I think that he, in the end of the day, he's somebody that recognizes things that are happening that, you know, are not visual, you know, and that there's like, a again, as I said, like most of the time we talked about things around the subject. Afterwards, I would think about what, what we were talking about and realize how it, it affects or pertains to what we are, we are doing in the score. But it's a lot of the times it's like this around the corner kind of. That's great. So, Marcel, I think that's that's a very positive, great place to yes. <laughs> wrap up. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Oh, no, I'm thrilled to be here. Oh, and, and I, I appreciate it. And obviously, I always love talking about film music, but I always love being uh, reminded of some of my favorite bands like Sepultura. So I'll probably, probably spend some of the afternoon listening to them or uh, some of Max Cavalera's other bands, too. So I love that. Absolutely. Some quiet, quiet listening. Of yeah, Sepultura. exactly. Yeah. A nice, relaxing Friday. Yeah, great. <laughs> well, Nick, thank you very much for having me. It's, a, it's amazing to be talking in depth about this. And I appreciate the, the really smart questions and, uh, you know, 
and really digging in deep into this process. Oh, that means so much. Thank you so much. Thank you.